Welcome to Can't Knock the Shuffle Season 2. I'm your host, Sean Cantrowitz. If you're anything like me, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume we have this in common, you love finding out how songs are made. The stories, the details, the hidden gems, all of it. Here's the thing. Most artists typically only get asked about a handful of their most popular tracks. Not only do fans like you and I want to hear the stories behind all of the songs, but I long have suspected that the artists themselves are pretty eager to share some of the untold stories too. That's why I created Can't Knock the Shuffle. I take an artist's entire catalog, put it in a playlist, throw it on shuffle, and then we talk about whichever songs are randomly selected. It's like live liner notes with an algorithm in the driver's seat. In this episode, I'm joined by one of hip hop's greatest storytellers, Master Ace, a man whose career spans over three decades and is chock full of distinct chapters and a seriously creative approach to making albums. He made his debut in 1988 on the Juice Crew's The Symphony, one of the greatest, if not the greatest hip hop posse cuts of all time. He also created a Brooklyn anthem as one-third of hip-hop supergroup Brooklyn Dodgers, where he, alongside rappers Special Ed and Buckshot from Black Moon, made the Q-Tip produced title track for the soundtrack to Spike Lee's beloved film Crooklyn. From there, his discography has consisted of mostly concept albums, from the satirical lampooning of gangster rap in 1993's Slaughterhouse, to more linear storytelling projects like 2001's Disposable Arts, to 2012's Ma Doom, Son of Yvonne, a project dedicated to his deceased mother over a bed of beats by MF Doom. There are few rappers currently making music who have the accolades that Ace has, and his dedication to the craft is just inspiring. All right, enough talk. Let's get into it. Master Ace, how are you? What's good, man? What's going on, Sean? I'm good, man. Really great to have you. You know, we were talking a little before we uh, started recording. It's always, this show is always really fun and really interesting when you're working with somebody who has such a lengthy catalog. And your catalog is, there's interesting chapters and you've had quite an evolution as an artist. And my question to you before we even get into any of these songs, how have you sort of navigated making those changes? You know, like you you, you went very conceptual at a certain point. You know, you, you were doing like more satirical stuff and sort of like commentary on the state of music. Do you always know the plan of what you're going to do when you start an album or does that sometimes reveal itself to you? I don't always know the plan. After my first album, because the first album I really didn't have any creative control other than writing the rhymes. You know, Marley Maul was leading the leading... Um, I was following his lead. I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was a brand new artist, had never made an album before. So I kept quiet. But after that album, I was always trying to tell stories within the album. And so from Slaughterhouse to Sitting on Chrome, and then obviously it really got more detailed when I got to the Disposable Arts album. But in most of those cases, I didn't really know where I was going to go with the story until I started making the songs. And then it all kind of came to me. A lot of stuff comes to me like in the middle of the night, like uh, four in the morning. I get the great idea. I write something down. You know, I, I used to keep a, a notepad and pen next to the bed. So I would, because I would always come up with these ideas in the middle of the night. And I had a little mini flashlight. So I, if, if I got up in the middle of the night and thought of something, I would turn that flashlight on, just write the, jot it down, and then go back to sleep. We went through your whole catalog and randomly selected seven songs, so we're going to hop right into it with our first song. Song one. It's from 2012, 
It's from the Ma Doom Son of Yvonne album, and the song is called Think I Am, featuring Big Daddy Kane and MF Doom. Rest in peace. Because the bottom is thick like a hippopotamus, tramp stamp on the lower back. See, I know the facts. The whole fill me in. My best friend is a twin named Lillian. I'm going really in. I'm really going in. Foul. I bust on that tile that you throwing in. Who you think I am? Who you think I am? I tried to holler outside when she was getting out of ride. Guess she must got that parking lot Alzheimer's. Cause now find us cozy at the bar. Guess at that point she ain't know she had a star. I can't explain what might have got into her. Obviously, we're all dealing with the recent loss of uh, MF Doom. I just I just listened to that recently. Is that because you were sort of reflecting on your work with him? Yeah, it was. It was. Um, I was asked to do sort of a, a, a quick audio tribute for, for a satellite radio sh uh, show and for me to reflect on my time with him. And so I, I recorded this, um, you know, really quick, you know, summary of my relationship with him and what he meant to hip hop. When I, when I sent the drop, the, the audio drop, they, they played it within the hour. And so after they played the drop, they played the song and I got to listen to it all the way through and just like really just sit back and just soak it up. And it's like, wow, like I'm glad that happened. It was one of those deals where you start to lose faith when you're working on the album and you ask somebody for a verse and so much time goes by and it just starts to seem like it's not going to happen. And um, I actually held my album up, up because the album was ready to go. Um, in 2011, it was ready to go, except for um, that song. Because we, we linked at the Montreux Jazz Festival in June of 2011. That's when I talked to him and I told him that I've been working on this project. I actually performed two of the songs from that album. They weren't mixed or anything. Just just went out there with roughs and performed those. Because I wanted him to hear the joints, you know, what I was working on. And he, he came on stage and everything. Like He's like rocking on stage while I'm performing the records to his beats. And then after the show, I went back to the, to his hotel room and I played him the whole album. And I was like, you know, it'd be dope if you could get on the joint. I played him the, the joint, you know, Think I Am. I only had my verse. I didn't have any other verses on, just my verse. And there was a particular line when I said, um, the last line in my verse where I said, uh, I bust on that towel that you're throwing in. I remember him like chuckling, like, oh, she said, oh, shit, oh, shit. And then he's like, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. So that was in June, you know, I, I was communicating with his with his with his cousin about getting a verse, and so June, July, July, August, September, October, November. For those who don't know, he he's not necessarily known to be the most reliable guy. Like he's, he's communication can be a little difficult, you know. Yeah, so I told my partner, I was like, "Yo, man, you know, if we don't, if I don't hear nothing by January, man, we're just gonna put the album out without without his verse." I, at that point, I had already had Big Daddy Kane's verse laid down on the song, and. I feel like it was like mid to late January where his cousin was like, yo, I spoke to him. He's working on it. He's, he, he's, he's definitely working on it. I was like, okay, well, that, that, that's at least a little light at the end of the tunnel, even though so many months had gone by. And I want to say February 15th or so, um, somewhere around there, mid-February, he sent the verse. And to my surprise, it wasn't just like a throwaway verse. It was like he wrote specific bars about me, about what the album was about. He talked about the show that me and Marco Polo did with him in in Mont at the Montreal Jazz Festival. Like he, I was glad I waited because that meant more than 
him just giving me a verse about whatever, just rhyming about whatever. Like he really, he wanted to write something specific, which made it more meaningful to me. I can be an impatient person when it comes to waiting for artists. So I, 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 I normally would have really moved on. Uh, my, my partner, Richards, was one of the people that was in my ear, like, you know, it's just, 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 just wait, just wait, just wait. And I think the label, you know, the distributor wanted to, us to wait too. But I was just getting impatient. But I was just really glad that he blessed the joint the way he did. And um, yeah, man, it's one of those songs I could always look back on. I'm glad we got to do a joint together. Yeah, it's interesting too, because it is, you know, especially for a guy like him, it's one of the less abstract verses from him. It is yeah, very yeah. literally like... He's talking about you. He's talking about the theme of the album. The album that it comes from is a uh, you know, collection of MF Doom beats and the theme that runs through it, it's uh, sort of a tribute and pays respect to your mother. Right. But that, that song itself, did that sort of tie into that? Or like, what was your sort of like thought about and, and getting Kane on that as well? Like, how did that fit in or, or what, what, what kind of part did that play? It was a, such a highly conceptual album. I felt like I needed... I needed a joint that was just bars, just rhyming, just going in. And and so that became what that song was going to be. It didn't matter. You know, I took the, cause the, the think I am sample was already in his, his beat. So I just wrote, I just wrote around the think I am and I let each of them, Kane and him and, and Doom figure out how they wanted to, you know, approach their verse um, and how it would connect to that. But Kane, I feel like I was around Kane right around the time I was working on that album. We were at some event together or something. And um, I was trying to figure out who I wanted on 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 the song. And then it just kind of like hit me. I think my partner Rich was like, yo, you haven't done nothing with Kane since the symphony, right? I was like, yo, I haven't. And, and so I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm not mad at that idea. And, and, and I reached out to him. And I didn't know if it was going to get you know Me and Kane are close with friends, but you never know. I never worked with him like in that capacity. So you never know how complicated it can get. Like dudes be like, well, you got to talk to my manager. Sure. We cool ace, but you got to talk to the manager. So, but he didn't do none of that. He just, um, he said, send me the beat. I sent him the beat. I want to say like a week. He shot, he shot it back to me, man. It's incredible. Yeah. Were, you, were you a big MF Doom fan, like leading up to deciding to do this project or how was, because a lot of these beats had sort of been circling around. He'd put out instrumentals. What, you know, was your relationship with his music leading up to deciding like, yo, I'm going to do a whole album over these Doom beats? So when I dropped Disposable in 01, the distributor uh, was a, a, a company called um, j Corps. And they actually had put out a Doom album on the same the same year. And so I remember going up to the distributor. They gave me a, ha a bunch of CDs, whatever they had co coming out on their label. Right. Since I was on the label, they're like, here. They gave me all this stuff. And so Doom's Mad, I think it was Mad Villainy. I think it was Mad Villainy. Uh, or, or maybe it was, maybe it was uh, the Food album. It was one of those two albums. But they gave it to me. And... I knew I knew who he was. I knew that I was um, Zev Love from KMD, and I would hear through you know the grapevine people talking that you know he was doing this new sound, this new you know persona. And initially, I was like, okay, let me see what this is about. So eventually, I listened to it. Some of the beats were just way too abstract for me, like almost like almost no real syncopated rhythm that you could like. How do you rhyme to this? Like some of it was like that. Very sloppy. A lot, a lot of the production was very just loose. It was just very, yeah. And so, but I was able to hone in on a couple of the joints that had the, the familiar rhythm for me. And then I got to really zero in on the, the rhymes. I was like, yo, this dude is saying some dope shit. Like, 
And so if it was from that moment, like in 01, that I started to, you know, pay more attention. And I guess he was still putting records out and, and consistently putting records out. But when I started working on the album, I had all these, you know, um, the beats. I, I, I was riding with a friend, my, my guy Roman, uh, Roman Oban, who used to play in the NFL. And I was riding with him in his car and he was playing all these beats. I was like, yo, who, who, what's, what's these beats right here? I wasn't familiar with his catalog to know, like, like people that are real doom heads, they hear the beats, they know, oh, that's doom, that's doom, that's such and such. They'll be able to tell you what, who rhymed on it, all that. And, but I didn't know the beats. So that made it dope for me to write to it because it was like new beats to me, even though most of the, his fans knew these beats like you know, inside out. For me, it was new. I don't, if I was familiar with the beats... I don't think I would have been able to write an album to them. So it worked out, you know, perfectly. Um, and Roman was playing. He had a CD with maybe like 30 or 40 of beats from his special herbs uh, releases, instrumental releases. And I was like, yo, let me, let me, you know, hook me up. I want, I want to ride with those. And it was really no plan to write to him. It was just to ride to him because I don't like listening to the radio. So I was out for a while. I was just riding around in the car, listening to those beats. And a couple of ideas started popping into my head, rhymes and stuff. And, you know, the album was kind of born from just riding around with his instrumentals. Song two. So sometimes the algorithm will select, you know, album cuts and sometimes bigger songs. Um, okay. So I'm sure you've been, I'm sure you've talked about this song before, but, you know, I think it's always cool to revisit. Uh, it's 1994. It's from a soundtrack. Uh, and the song is called Kirkland. We did it like that and now we do it like this. We did it like that and now we do it like this. Go inside your mind and find a time that you miss. And just think about the steel in your fist. It's just an extension of your arm. It's that ghetto type of charm that makes all the homeboys swarm. Can I drop the bomb? Oh yes I can. Move with the groove, smooth like Geechee Dan. Who is the man? That kid there. Who is the chick with the pick in her hair? Yeah, man. What are your thoughts when you hear this song? I still remember getting a phone call from Q-Tip, who had never called me before. Like, it was just like, who is this? Yo, it's, you know, it's Tip. You want to be on this song for Spike Lee movie? Like, he asked me, like, just like, matter-of-factly like that. I was like, hell yeah, like, I need this right now. I, you know, it's 94, but... At that, at the time when we did that record, my song "Born to Roll" had blown up around the country. It was huge in the West Coast. It was huge in the South. It was huge in the Midwest. It wasn't huge in New York. The talk on the street was, you know, you know, Ace. He went over there with them because, you know, it was very much a divided culture at that time. It was either West or East. Take your pick. And so they, they kind of, you know, New York kind of pushed me into the West ledger. Like you over there with them. You ain't rocking with us. You with them. You doing that kind of music. The timing on being asked to do this Crooklyn song, a song, a movie about the city that I'm from, where I was born, raised. The timing on it was perfect for me. It was, it was, it was a no-brainer for me to say yes. I remember going to Special Ed Studio, Dollar Cab Lab on Utica Avenue in Brooklyn, and sitting down. A tip was there, Ali Shahid, Buckshot. I, I can't remember everybody that was there, but it was probably about eight, eight, eight or ten people there, and he played the beat. And it sounded dope. I was like, okay, cool. And so we all went home and wrote our rhyme. I can't remember where we, if we went back to Dollar Cab to record. I think we did, but we record, we, we wrote, we recorded, and then Tip submitted it to Spike Lee. When Spike Lee heard the rhymes, we didn't get, we weren't given any direction. It was like, yo, go in. So we were just rhyming. Like I'm, 
you know, braggadocia. Just yeah, going I'm, in. I'm the best. I'm the illest. I'm the dopest. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Spike heard it. He's like, yo, this is dope, but it doesn't really capture what the movie is about. And he's like, you guys need to see the movie. So he set up a screening. This was like months before I hit the theaters. He, he set up a private screening for me, Buckshot, Special Ed, Q-Tip, Alicia, a few other people um, in, a, in a very small, cozy little theater. And the theater might have held 25 people. It was like one of those kind. And had you ever written a song like in this way where you're writing it to fit a, a soundtrack or a theme? Like, or was this sort of mm. a first time for you having to rewrite and think about it to accompany a piece of media? I don't think I'd ever done that before that I can, that I can remember. And so we watched the movie. They turned the lights up and Spike was like, okay, now go back and rewrite the verses based on what you just saw. And that what you got is the result of of that song, um, us referencing the 70s and that time period. I, I mentioned the TV shows that were out back then and all of that. But it was just kind of cool that there's another version of Crooklyn that I don't know who has. I, I, I believe that I have it on a cassette somewhere in a box, a bin, somewhere in my madness. Yeah. There, there exists a cassette that has the original rhymes which I think would be cool to hear because I have no idea what rhyme I even said. I'd love to hear that. So when you finish this second version and it is more thematic to the film and talking about, you know, the, the city, does it feel like it's a monumental moment or does it just feel like, you know, sometimes this was obviously a huge song and it, and it spurred a sequel that, that came, you know, uh, a year later. And, and then even another one that was done like in the 2000s as well, yeah, a little yeah. less popular. But at the time, does it sort of feel like, yo, that we've made something important with a capital I or is it just like, oh, this is great. This is a dope song. Like, keep it moving. Well, for me, it was important for my, it was important to my career that that song, that I was on that song. I needed that balance. And so the timing of it couldn't have been better. I, I can't help when I hear that song, I can't help but think about what could have been because we were supposed to do the Crooklyn 2 song as well, Me, Buckshot, and Special Ed. Spike actually wanted to go forward and do an album. He had a deal with MCA Records, and he was full steam ahead with, yo, let's do an album. All of that was exciting to me. But unfortunately, Buckshot and his, his, his camp, they had just signed their, their deal with Priority Records. They had a lot of money coming in. They were very busy, and he chose not to be on the Crooklyn 2 joint. And so... We set about the task of first trying to talk him into doing it and then trying to find somebody to replace him. And before me and Ed could even get the conversation going, Spike was like, nah, I'm just going to switch it. Just just make it all, you know, it's not it's not the same if you just replace one. So I'm just going to get all three new guys. And there it was. I was, you know, booted. We got booted. And it never came to fruition. So I always think about what could have been. Um, the cool thing is I did end up, because Premier scratched my voice, I did end up being on in the video and on the song for Crooklyn 2. So that's cool. Very prominently, too. I mean, like it's not just a little, you know, you're, you're in a car driving by real quick. Like every, every right. time the hook happens, you're getting some screen time, which I always thought was cool, you know, not only for them to acknowledge you, but you sort of obviously passing the baton to them as well. But yeah, what could have been? What, what could have been, right? Why do you think that is, too, that that happens a lot? You mentioned something earlier where sometimes it's easier to get love outside of where you're from first, and then eventually people come around. We can talk about this a little bit later, too, as we get into it, but do you feel like that was effective once you did that song, that it, you did feel a little bit more solidified and accepted by New York? Yeah, I would say yes. Um, it wasn't a necessarily warm fuzzy reception but it was like all right cool you know 
He's still down, I guess. It was more like that. <laughs> Typical New York. <laughs> That's New York, though. That's New York. Song three. Missing by, this is, a, this is an expansive catalog. So now we're all the way up to 2018. Uh, it's from a Brooklyn story with Marco Polo, and the song is called Sunken Place. Life is a test that we keep trying to cheat on. Easier to dance through the time, put a beat on. We can get our freak on, but can't get our speak on. Eyes closed, can't see the light from the beacon. From a sunken place, we look up to the sky. Thinking we ain't really gonna get up till we die, nah. Rise up, raise up, get up, stand up. Rise up, wake up, sit up. What a hypnotic beat, first of all. Like, just instantly, yeah. the first time I heard that, and I would infer that you might have had the same reaction. You, It kind of just sucks you in, right? Like When I heard it, I was like, ooh. I had the cadence, but I didn't know what the rhymes were going to be. But I knew I had the, I, I knew how I, was, how I wanted the rhyme to fit into that beat. Once I started figuring out what the what the lines were going to be, I just it, it just it really wrote itself. The hook was problematic until I until I reached out to uh, my guy Pav Bundy, who who's done several hooks for me over the years. I knew I wanted to call the song "Sunken Place," but I had no, I couldn't even really give him any direction. Like this is what I want the hook to say, or this is how I want the hook to sound. I was like that was one of those. Sometimes I, ha I have ideas, but that was one of those where I was just like, this is what I have. See what you can come up with. I couldn't believe how fast he came back with something, how dope the hook was. He put the, the whipped cream and the cherry on top of that joint and made it made it a song. Because if we didn't have that hook, you know, it's a dope record, but without that hook, it, it's not, it's incomplete. What's the relationship and the working relationship been like with uh, Marco Polo? It, obviously, you did a whole album with him. I know you worked with him, you know, before. So how did that sort of come to be? Marco, Marco has been around me since... 2004, 0405, when he, he produced a joint on my album Aloha Summer. He also produced a couple of joints for EMC, my, 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 my group. And then we took him on the road with us. EMC went out on a tour. We took Marco um, and Torre out as openers for the EMC, EMC tour. Music relationships are really built on tour. You get that chemistry and you, you know, you're like you're essentially living together. We just became really close in those, in those, in those years. And um, we, we found out that we both like to eat at good, proper sit-down restaurants when we're on the road. That's, which is super important because that, that is the line in the sand when you're on. I've, I've been on tours with people as well, and it's like there's the people who want to eat fast food yes, or, yes, yes. or gas station food, and then it's like, nah, like let's spend a little extra. Like, you know, exactly. Yeah. And, that, and, and, and I could always count on Marco <laughs> to, to, yo, I'm with you, Ace. Let's go, get, let's go to an official spot and sit down and... They give bring out bread first, like <laughs> so. We we definitely bonded in that way when we were on that tour. He 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 brought us to his 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 folks' home. We met his mom, met his dad, met his dog. You know his dad that his dad uh, barbecued. You know in his backyard for us. Met his brother. You know that's how relationships. You know real friendships get built. And so you know music is is sort of the backdrop. But we you know we're friends like first and foremost. Um, Love that guy, great guy. He holds it down. If if I could if I could get him to quit smoking, everything else about him would be just absolutely perfect. Well, maybe he'll hear this. Maybe this will be the uh, you know hearing it in a public space. No, nah, I don't know. So. I don't know. When you're working with somebody, the dynamic between uh, when when a 
artist works with a producer and it's like a full album who who's driving the ship it, or is it really like is it really a 50 50 because also i would imagine he's probably geeking out because he's a hip-hop producer and he's working with master ace i think he's way past that because like i said it's, it's a friendship like he's not i don't think he thinks about it like that i think we're just doing music but as far as who drives the ship he'll say that i drive the ship but i'll say that hit without his inspiration from the music because if i don't get the right music we don't have a project. Like I, I'm not gonna be excited. I'm not gonna write nothing dope, and it's like a waste of time. I, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. You know, um, he submitted many, many beats for that album. Bef- you know that I that I said no to. You know, I don't, I don't think I hurt his feelings. It was just like he would send me like three beats. I'd be like, nah, none of these. And it wasn't even that the beats weren't good. They just weren't me. And I would always tell him like I was, I would tell him who it fits. I said, this sounds like. This sounds like some bumpy, bumpy knuckle shit. Or this sounds like some MOP shit. But this ain't for me. And he'd be like, I got you, I got you. And then every now and then, and I, and I really explained to him what I was looking for. You know, I want stuff that's more melodic, that's heart, that's more heartfelt. Get some strings in there. Strings are always good. Violins, cellos. Those are the things that get me, you know, get, get my ideas going. And so he really just followed the things that I asked for and was able to ultimately deliver the perfect, you know, set of set of set of beats that that, that turns into that that great album. This is from 2001 uh, Disposable Arts album that we mentioned earlier. And the song is called Type I Hate. Stop and stare for what you there for. Do you need to know every single thing about my life? It's not enough that I rap and sing about my life. Even when I'm asleep, you got nothing else to do. But call up your man who's a bitch nigga just like you. Talking about my business like it ain't nothing. Y'all have a two-hour discussion on who I might be fucking. Cats with these feminine ways and traits. Just one example of the type of niggas I hate. Come on. See, some motherfuckers got nothing to do. What do you think about when you look back to the disposable arts era? Where where were you at now that we're shit, 19, 20 years removed from it, which is a crazy sentence to say out loud. It is. Where I was in my mind was this is gonna be my last album. Nobody's really interested in what I'm doing musically, which is okay. But what I what I do want to do is I want to go out on my own terms. I want to I want to go in the studio. I want to make the exact album that's in my head. I want to pick all the beats. I want to decide on all the choruses, all the features, all the skits. And when it was when it's all said and done, if I don't do another record, at least I'll be able to look back at this record and say that's a complete representation of what I could do without label people in my ear. Um, because up to that point, I had to, I had to, I had to answer to people, and and, and I didn't, I, I was sick of that. You had had an album that was lost or shelved as well. It, it was one album that got shelved the year, like like a couple of years before Disposable Drop, like '98, around '98. I had an album that I was working on that didn't come out, and that was when I really stepped away from the industry. I I got dropped from that deal, and I was kind of done for a while. I was like not messing with music at all. I was really more about trying to get more behind the scenes, produce, you know, maybe get a job at a at a record label. I was shopping um, beats as and as as well as resumes, um, just trying to see if I could get me a job somewhere and where, see I could, if I could land at a, in a nice little situation and help other artists, you know, m- maybe not make the same mistakes. That was my that was my thinking around that time. 
the title itself, Disposable Arts, and the skits and the motif that kind of runs through it, it did kind of seem like you were you kind of were seeing the writing on the wall as to where it seems like things were going at the time. And you're, you're, you're making commentary on it. You're talking about, you know, you, you have like these skits where there's like this school that you can go to and like learn how to become a practitioner of the bullshit of the industry. Like the same shit that you were saying about, I don't think you were wrong. I think everybody would agree that you weren't wrong either, but does getting that statement out, make it any better or do, like you know what, what's your sort of thought on that now it's like you made an album called disposable arts and yo guess what a lot of music did continue to become more and more disposable yeah that was the at, at that time period when i made that album that was the era where uh the sort of the whatever the new rappers were of that time period they were going in the studio recording 50 songs and then trying to pick the album based on the 50 songs they recorded so many throwaways so many joints that never saw the light of day because they weren't well thought out they were just like beat verse chorus repeat i could tell from the music that i was hearing that people didn't really put any time into what they were doing one verse didn't matter you could take a verse off one song and put it on another song it would be the same song i just felt like there was a deeper you know purpose for hip-hop as far as i was concerned and that i wanted to come from just a pure artistic place and and speak about what I was seeing, and so that that thus the title, and even down to you know I remember the title and tell when I when I told my partner Rich Filthy Rich when I told him because I didn't reveal the title till way towards the end. They kept asking me. I was like, I'm not saying nothing yet because I really wasn't sure yet. I was still toying around, and when I finally told him and my man DJ Rob, they were, they were my two partners. When I told them what the title was, it was like a a pause in the room, like they they looking at each other. Well, what does that mean? And, and I was just like, yo, that's the title, man. Like, I, you know, I, I made it very clear to them that this was going to be, if, if I was going to do this album, that I, I wanted full say on everything that I'm doing. And I didn't want any pushback or any alternate opinions. Just let me make the album I want to make. And and they did do that. There was there was a few, you know, moments where they were second guessing me. Like, I remember my, rich, my, my partner Rich saying, you know, ain't nothing up-tempo. You get some up-tempo joints. I'm like, Rich, shut up, please. Let me do the album I want to do. I don't want to hear about up-tempo. I don't hear about radio. I don't want to hear about none of that. Right. Let me do Let me do my album, please. Because you're looking at this as your exit statement anyway. So you're not trying yeah. to, like, you know, plant the seeds of, of radio hits and, like, Right. Success. Exactly. Exactly. You made a song called Type I Hate where you're talking about the type of people that you hate that you feel like are being dishonest with you. You're making it on an album called Disposable Arts where you're talking about, like, Yo, the industry is clearly like on some bullshit. I sounded bitter. Well, yeah, but but my question was really going to be <laughs> like like in the years that followed. Obviously, you didn't retire, so something shifted. But do you feel? Did you feel that those things were still true? Did you feel like you were still dealing with bullshit? And did you feel like the industry that you were working in was being consumed by bullshit or? What changed, I guess? Or, or did nothing change in your perception, but your just attitude about it changed? What changed was I went on tour in 2000, right before that album was made. I went to Europe. I did uh, 13 shows. And I went out there with really no expectations other than I'm going to make a few bucks and I'm going to come home. I hadn't really done any... any I hadn't done a tour like that in Europe ever. It was, it was, I'd done maybe a one-off here, a one-off there, but never a 13 shows in a row. I couldn't believe that people were f- coming out to these clubs and filling these clubs up 
was so enthusiastic about me being on stage and doing these records. And that was really the catalyst for me to make Disposable Arts because I thought nobody cared anymore. And after Disposable Arts dropped and we went on this tour in 01 with Punching Words and Strickland and DJ AV and JF, that was when I found out that people actually cared what I was doing. They knew the words to Disposable, to songs off Disposable. It was because of like Napster and stuff like that. People were sharing my music. And we were performing songs that people were familiar with. And the album hadn't even dropped yet. Like, we went on tour before the album dropped. It gave me new life. It gave me the realization that, you know, maybe my, my, my thinking was a little bit too fire and brimstone and screw the industry. I, I, I figured out that I had a lane and all I needed to do was stay in that lane and just and make music for these people that are filling these clubs up in Europe and everything else will take care of itself. And that's, that's exactly what happened. There, there's an argument that could be made that some of the work that you've done before was, it was conceptual for sure, but this was sort of a, a, a concept album and you've pretty much been releasing concept albums by and large ever since. So I feel like, I, I guess, being embraced by the crowds for taking a risk. Like again, your manager was like, no, the single, you're like, please shut up. <laughs> like, let, let, me, let me try this. I want to make a, a concept album, which there weren't many of, you know, there, there's certainly been more over the years that this kind of kicked off the concept album kick for you. To me, to me, the concept thing started uh, at Slaughterhouse, but I hadn't fully realized it yet. Like I, I hadn't fully executed it is what I'm really meant to say. Slaughterhouse was a, was a, I stuck my toe in the water, tried it out. And then the next album, sitting on Chrome, I got a little bit more. Uh, there was a little bit more narrative in the storyline, um, but it wasn't until Disposable that I pulled it all together and made it really cohesively flow with the songs, beginning to end. But I, I've been trying it. I've been trying to do do what I did ever since '93. It just took me a while to figure out exactly what it was, and it all came together um, on that album. I should I should I should mention. Um, on the Type I Hate song, I, I should big up the two ladies on the song, uh, Rod Digger, obviously, and then my wife singing the hook for me. Um, you know, that's, that's, that has to always be mentioned because she, she, she blessed the song. It's a great transition because the next song that we have is from the next album, and it's a song that also features her. This is from A Long Hot Summer, and the song is called Brooklyn Massala. I met her on the corner of Gates and bed It was only right that I approached and said hi, because she looked like no other chick I ever saw. She was on the way coming up out the corner store. I asked, could I carry her bags and walk her home? I could tell she was new in New York just from her tone, because she wasn't that typical rude and ignorant. Teeth sucking and eye rolling, telling me leave alone. We dipped and we yapped, we chatted and we chat about this and that and where she lived at. Yeah, this may sound kind of Wu Tang clannish, but this butter pecan honey was not Spanish. Now we're in the long hot summer era. You kind of already touched on this a little bit in our la in the last song, but now maybe you're you're not as closed off. Maybe you're kind of more leaning into this new direction at this point. So the only reason that a long hot summer that album got made is because as soon as disposable dropped in 01 like within less than a month the distributor went out of business they fold they closed their doors they folded like they they shipped my album to some outlets and then it just, the whole operation j core just went out of business like like the people that were working at the office on a day-to-day -day, they came to work not even knowing like they came to work and it was like oh no we're we're done like work's over 
which is exactly what you want when you're an artist who just put out a concept album that you need yeah. to get like worked. It's like all your support disappears. It was just like, here we go. Another, you know, another one of these situations. Like, and why me? And so I said, you know, this album is not going to get a fair shake because of this mess. So I need to do another album that lets people know about disposable arts because I felt like people weren't going to know about it. And so my idea was to do because Disposable Arts told this narrative from beginning to end, my idea was to, to make A Long Hot Summer be the prequel to the story on Disposable Arts. That was my plan. My plan was to write this storyline because at the beginning of Disposable Arts, my character is, is coming out of, figuratively coming out of, stepping out of prison. That's, that was really symbolism. It was really me not putting out records for X amount of years. If you listen to the lyrics on the song, the first song of the album, it explains it. But anyway, I wanted to do this prequel because if I connected the two albums together, if fans got Along Hot Summer and loved it, and then they heard me in interviews say, oh, there's another album that I did before this that's connected, connects the story. That's why at the end of Along Hot Summer, my character is getting locked up in, in jail. Do you have any specific memories about this song in particular, Brooklyn Masala? Yeah, I, I, I remember in, that in 2000, I recorded that song to a different beat out in Philadelphia with um, Jazzy Jeff and the Touch of Jazz producers. Uh, shout out to my man, Darren Henson and Ivan, those guys, dope young producers at the time. And they were really just starting to get their stuff going out there in Philly. This is pre-Jill Scott, pre-Floetry, pre-Music Soul Child. Everybody was just in a, such a creative space. And so I wrote that song and recorded that song in Philly first to a completely different beat. And, and I should mention that Marsha Ambrosius, singer Marsha Ambrosius, sings the hook on the original Brooklyn Masala. That song exists. It's on. Um, you, you can find it on YouTube. Um, I, I put it. I made it available on one of my uh, Master Ace Hit You Missed mix CDs. Um, but yeah, she she sang the original hook on it. And I once once you know I got this idea to do this new album. I said I'm you know I'm gonna save that beat. And I'm, gonna, I'm gonna save that song and use it on something. And I saved it and used it on. Um, Long on summer. So I, I made that in 2000 and didn't come out to 04. Was it the original beat or did the beat change? You're saying no, a beat, new, totally different beat, totally different beat. And so the hook that she, the hook that she sung, wouldn't have worked on the new beat. And I think by then, Floor Tree had kind of taken off, and I knew it was going to get complicated. So I, I just, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just revisit it and 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 keep the lyrics and just change everything else. We may have talked about this when you were on the questions last year, but when you're creating a concept album, are you writing it linearly? Like, even if you, like, do you either have an outline or are you writing the songs in the order of the story or is it just kind of all over the place? Ne neither. N not, not at all. I, I focus on this, the music making first with no storyline in mind at all. I've heard, I've heard other concept albums where you can tell that what they're trying to do in the in the songs is connect the skits that way it changes what you would rap about i don't even think about concept skits storyline while i'm working on the music once i get 75 percent of the music recorded then i start thinking about where to go with this with the storyline of the of this of the skits so you basically reverse engineer it where you do the music and then you you make the skits around the song exactly exactly you know, as somebody who has done so many concept albums, what are some of the concept albums in hip hop or otherwise that really stick out to you as nailing it or, or hitting all the marks? I really, I really liked um, Kendrick Lamar's 
Good Kid, Bad City album. I think that reminded me the most of something I would have done. The story about him borrowing his mom's van and he's out with the van. All this shit happens with the van and with him and dudes pulling guns on him and all this kind of stuff. And meanwhile, back home, the mother's like trying to get her van so she can go whatever she had to go do something. And, and then on the cover is a picture of the van. Like all of that was to me like right in line with, 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 with so I, I felt right at home listening to that album that, you know, of all of the other concept albums that have been put out, like that's one, that's one that, that executed it the best to me and, and in line with what I would, what I would do. It's funny too, because a lot of times when you look at these concept albums, the story itself, if you told it like just on a piece of paper, You'd be like, okay, but like, is that really an amazing story? It's like, yeah, he borrowed his mom's van and then like he got in trouble, yeah. but then he returned the van. But it's all of the 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 fleshing out of the world through the songs and the emotions. Right. And you you do that too. The log line, as it were, of like the plot is just like, okay, but the songs really it builds it and like the it, it builds on the skeleton. You get like the flesh and and, and absolutely. Soul six. All right, we're going to move to 1993. We talked about it a little bit before, but this is from the Slaughterhouse album, and it is the song, Slaughterhouse. It's the Jeep. What you know about the Jeep? It's the Jeep. It's the Jeep. Here we go with the Jeep. Never hear me talking like a killer, man. Started making records, but I'm still a fan. I'll take you down. I'll break your crown. I'll make you frown. I don't think there's many people in the industry, to my knowledge, who have done what you did here, which is, and just to put it into context here, you, you, you adopted the sound from another region, like you were saying, like, you know, you're from New York, and you sort of latched onto the sounds of gangster rap and LA and sort of that sort of embraced it in a way while also kind of undermining it or, or, or speaking critically of it, I guess you could say. Yeah, I did. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I did that. Um, what was the precedent on that? Like, and, and were you thinking in your mind because again, you say you're from New York, you know, your first album, you didn't have as much creative control over it, but it didn't have that sound. Are you thinking like, yo, I'm going to do this and piss a lot of people off? Or, or is it like, I'm going to do this and everybody's going to understand what I'm doing and maybe it, it didn't necessarily connect in that way? Or it kind of did also. I don't, I, don't, know. I, I don't know if I cared if I pissed anybody off um, because I didn't say anybody's name. I was really just talking about the genre in general. And it wasn't even about West Coast per se. You know, because of, because in the video, the rappers that were being that I was de- that I was depicting in the in the video had Jerry Curl wigs and Raiders hats on. That's what made it seem like I was specifically going at you know L.A. But it was really the entire genre because what had happened at that point in time in '93, '92, '93, the success of N.W.A. sparked this complete movement and shift in the industry where record labels by and large, were only signing artists that had that same message, the same concept, the same delivery as NWA. Because they were platinum and double platinum and triple plat, whatever they were, all the labels were looking for the next NWA. And it became so flooded with that. And then all of the New York rappers, everybody started wearing big um, 40 below boots and, you know, trying to rap super about gangster and fighting guns and 
knives and you know it just became super like violent and negative and that somehow somehow along the way those images and those ideas and those themes became associated with what hardcore hip-hop was and in my mind that never was what hardcore it wasn't it wasn't about the content it was about is the beat hard is the mc going in is he saying some stuff like is it dope that, that that's what it was really about and so i felt like the music industry sort of I guess recategorize what hardcore hip hop was, and that bothered me. And so it was more me going at the industry than a coast or whatever. But it, you know, I, I can understand how people, some people, took it that I was just specifically going to L.A. And then, you know, look what happened years later. A couple years later, I'm I'm the biggest record in, in in on the radio in L.A. I'm curious to know about at that when that happens. Is that a straight win, like a, a success for you, or is that like? Oh shit! Like, do they get it? Like, is it big? It, it, are they gravitating to it? But do they also understand the message within? Or was that not even an issue? With Slaughterhouse, I think it went over most people's heads. Only the only the real, you know, intellectual hip hop heads got it. But the, by and large, the industry didn't. They never even got it. And and how I know that is because I remember being at a car show in St. Louis. The promoter, I was out there for a show and the promoter told me, he's like, yo, your song, your song Slaughterhouse is, 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 is like, that's the song out here. Like everybody's rocking to that. He's like, watch, they're going to play it. They're going to play it. And we're at this car show. I think it was a wet t-shirt contest or something going on. And the DJ puts on Slaughterhouse, but not, not my part, the parody part, the first part where they're talking about murder, murder, murder and kill, kill, kill. We were trying to like kind of crack a joke a little bit. Satire. It was satire. And the people in St. Louis and in Houston and other places, they took it on face value. Like that, yeah, murder, murder. They was completely rocking with it. Like it was uh, intentional that that's what we were promoting. And I, I was like, I, I, I was amazed. I couldn't believe it. Like I just, I, you know, I'm not going to make a big deal about it, but I was like, wow, like people really don't get what's happening on this song. Okay. And because of that, we actually had to go back and do a remix version with just uh, MC Negro and the ignorant MC. We had to do a, a, a three, four minute version of just them rapping because that's, that version was blowing up. But how did that make you feel at that point? I felt a little like discouraged, I guess, because my message really didn't, didn't hit the mark for people. And, you know, part of me was like, man, people are stupid. <laughs> that's, 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 what, that's, what, that's what I was saying somewhat in my head. Like, wow, how dumb are y'all? Y'all don't get this part, but all right, whatever. Well, obviously, there were elements to the music that you must have enjoyed as well, because if you're going to dive in and you're kind of trying on these clothes, you know, like you're you're wearing, you know, the the sounds of, of the beats and like the aesthetic and stuff like that. Was it more so that was it not that you necessarily had a problem with this music, but it was that the industry was all just like, this is the only shit. This is like the only right. like, true that, you, form. You, you nailed it right on the head. It wasn't that I hated gangster rap. I listened to N.W.A. and others. Some of that stuff was dope, but all of a sudden, y'all gonna turn the whole hip hop movement into that? Like that's not all it is. We got Tribe Called Quest, we got Kwame, we got Salt and Pepper, we got Kid and Play, we got all of these different artists that are making dope music that's talking about different stuff, not just gangster stuff, not just shooting people, not shooting cops, not you know. And it became it's either this or the industry wasn't messing with it. And that's where I had a problem. Right, because not only is that creatively stifling, but it also takes on problematic elements also when you see the artists that are being showcased 
and the people who are often co-signing and making the decisions about this is what it is. You know, yep. I'm speaking yep. about far broader, you know, sociological, you know, issues there. And then, and then we talk, um, and then, and, and the result of it, you got, you got, you got banging in Little Rock. Like that, that's what, that's what comes of it. You got gang, you know, Clips and Bloods in Little Rock, Arkansas, because of this big, huge movement that the music industry is putting hundreds of millions of dollars behind to promote these images, these ideas, these thoughts, drinking 40s and smoking blunts and uh, misogyny, all of that stuff. The industry threw tons of money behind it and I had a problem with it, so I, I tried to speak on it. It's like, lo and behold, there actually was a cause and effect. <laughs> like, Believe it or not, spending yeah. $100 million has, has an effect. One last thing before we move on to our last song. Did you ever sort of feel like, because the, the following album, you know, also sort of, adopted more of that sound as well. But did you sort of feel like you were going down that path where you might like be pigeonholed into that? Or was it always like, I know I can step out of this, you know, and I'm going to go back to doing whatever music I want to do, you know, after I'm done doing more of these satirical projects? Well, Really Slaughterhouse was the only satirical project I did. The next album, Sitting on Chrome, was sort of, you know, me trying to clear the air a little bit and bring the coast together, you know? So I have this storyline of my cousin from LA coming out to New York to stay with me. And it was like me trying to show the two cultures blending together and getting along and how, how it could be just fun. And you know, a West Coast kid could come to the East Coast and chill out and hang out with his cousin and go meet girls and do all of that kind of stuff. Maybe I figured that I had rubbed some people the wrong way and I wanted to make up for it and and that, that was the way I made up for it I don't know it was like an olive branch kind of in that way yeah yeah Soul 7 is from 2016 it's from your album The Falling Season and the song is called Mathematics that little rap cast ain't figured this the specimen's regimen is rigorous Hate so exponential, my potential means it's only couple bars for a nigga this. Is it geometry or trigonometry? Try and count up all the currency that I'ma see. And where I'ma be, it's on top like a numerator. Fast, it's the cash accumulator. Trying to follow after this is like calculus. It's hard to calculate what you about to miss. I'm like a fully grown tree when I bear fruit. I'm feeding y'all from the branch to the Another very conceptual song, you know, existing as an island in itself where, you know, you're just using math as sort of like a metaphor and, and math terms. How do you devise that? I like having fun when I write, man. Like, I like to be challenged when I'm writing. You can get bored, you know. Um, I have a lot of people that they reach out to me. They, 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 they want me to spit a 16 on their song or their album, whatever. And it's like the same damn thing. Would you, what's, what's the, I asked them, what's the concept of the song? Um, just the, the love of hip hop and, you know, like, come on, like, damn, like, how many of those verses can you write after a certain point? It just, it just becomes boring. And so anytime I get the opportunity to do something outside the box, and I know there was, there was other songs, there was another, there was another couple of artists that did songs about math. And I listened to those, I listened to those songs to make sure that they weren't, they didn't do what I was going to do. And so, I just have fun and I, 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 I always have fun writing conceptual songs because I want to see just how deep I can go and how clever I can be. You know, there, there used to be a time in hip hop where being clever and being witty was a cool thing. Some of that gets missed now. And so um, mathematics was definitely one of those joints where 
I just wanted to have a little fun, be witty, you know, and 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 make people ooh and ah a little bit. When you're working with a theme of a song and a motif like that, how much research do you do? Like, obviously, we all took math classes when we were, you know, in school. But like, are you are you busting out like a, a glossary of like what's a what's a math term that I could throw in here? I definitely did that um, because I I wanted to well a record like that. What I want to do is as I'm writing it, I want to have a page full of math terms. I think I might have just Google math terms or something like that. And I just wrote a bunch of them down. Like, oh, this, this, especially the words, the math terms that could be used in double meaning double, in, in more than one way. So I just wrote a bunch of math terms on the paper, put the beat on and just started constructing a verse or two verses based on with, with, the, with those words helping guide me. It's fun, fun exercise. This song comes from The Falling Season, which is another conceptual album where you're sort of speaking about a specific era of your life, your, your you know, childhood years in school. High school, yeah. Yeah, high school. I think I know the answer to this, but have you thought about or are you in the process of writing a film or writing a story? Because it seems like all of these albums are sort of the hip-hop album equivalent of that. I'm writing a hip-hop musical right now. I am... It's about two years in the process of doing it, writing it. A lot of the music is already written. The script is written, but I, I don't like to say the script is written because that, that sort of suggests that it's finished. The script is ever-changing. Ever it's too long at the moment. I got to cut down about 20, 25 pages off of what I have. But we, I've been working on it for about two years. Um, earlier in, early, early in 2020, um, March, I believe, right before the um, quarantine started, we had a table read. We brought some actors in. And we had the actors sit around the table and just read the parts. Um, I think each actor had two two roles. So, you know, because it's like, I don't know how many characters. There's like, there's maybe 12 or, or, or so characters in, in the musical, but we didn't want to have 12 different people. So we just brought like six or seven people and some people read two parts. And just so we could hear it. So the story's coming out great. Um, I'm excited about it. I'm still making the, mu you know, working on the music part, um, which is a challenge, but I like challenges. Being able to, write a song and still push the narrative forward uh, of the musical and not and not sound corny like that's the the challenge um and so yeah i've been working on the music and we're going to do we're actually going to do a mixtape of the music from the musical where i'm going to get some of my good friends in hip-hop to come in and record these songs as these characters and we're going to put that out and um so people are actually going to get to hear the music from the musical before the musical actually comes out and listen, if there's anybody who is qualified to create a hip-hop musical that is about hip-hop, it's definitely this man. Big thanks to Master Ace for his time and for his great catalog of music. Keep up with his latest projects by visiting MasterAce.com or following him on Twitter at MasterAce or Instagram at MasterAcePicks. Or just Google him. You guys have the internet, right? Listen, it's so great to be back. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and give it a five-star rating and review. If you like Can't Knock the Shuffle, be sure to check out the other shows on Stony Island Audio, including Open Mike Eagles' What It Happened Was with LP, Dad Bod Rap Pod, Super Duty Tough Work, Fatherhoods, and Self Core. If you want to talk to me, I'm at Sean Dammit on social media, or send me a message at can'tknocktheshuffle at gmail.com and tell me who you want to see on the show next. And also be sure to check out my hip-hop game show, The Questions, by visiting questionshiphop.com. Till next time, peace.